KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. I just wanted to say I appreciate all of your support of the Flashpoint show and podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you subscribe to the podcast and be sure to rate and review? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Have a happy 2021. Now back to the show. Coming up. Neither state nor federal governments have said that COVID-19 vaccination is mandatory, but could that be the next step? Universities, hospitals, gyms, they could say, you know, no shirt, no shoes, no vaccine, no service. The vax versus the unvax. What will life look like? We do a deep dive with an expert. Then the city of Philadelphia hopes to use transparency as a tool for economic equity. There were a whole lot of people putting their fists in the air saying black lives matter. But that was until we started talking about economics. Philadelphia City Council member Sherelle Parker discusses a new law that will shine the light on the diversity of firms working with the city. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the mass effort to get COVID-19 vaccines into as many arms as possible. The end of the pandemic is in sight, but coronavirus cases are beginning to surge in some sections of the U.S., and there's talk about the possibility of a vaccine mandate. Italy recently made the COVID-19 vaccine mandatory for all healthcare workers, and a European court just held mandatory vax could be considered necessary in a democratic society. Could that happen in America? We have Dr. Robert Field. He is a professor of law and of health management and policy at Drexel University. Dr. Field, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks. Happy to be here. So, you know, this is a a very interesting time. Got to ask you straight up. Can the U.S. government make COVID-19 vaccines mandatory for everybody? In theory, it could. It could use its powers to Uh, regulate interstate commerce since the disease crosses state lines and affects commerce. It could use its powers of uh, national defense to say this is a defense issue. But realistically, I don't think the government would do that. Politically, it would be a non-starter. A lot of people would be very offended by the idea. Also, logistically, how would they do it? How would they keep track of 330 million people in a way that's accurate and private and usable? I don't see that that would really be possible. What about state or municipal governments? Because we have had a situation in this country where some states say you got to wear masks. Some cities say you got to wear masks. Other places don't. Could a similar patchwork of rules happen when it comes to vaccines? There could absolutely be a patchwork of rules. And in fact, there probably will be. We've seen New York come up with a digital app that you can use to show that you've been vaccinated. And we've seen Florida and Texas have executive orders from their governors prohibiting any use of vaccine verification or passport, even by private businesses. So I would be surprised if we didn't see a patchwork. States would have the power to require that everyone be vaccinated. They already use a similar power to require that school children be vaccinated before they can enter school. It's a similar problem, though, to the federal government. Politically, there'd be a tremendous amount of pushback. And logistically, even if we're talking about one state, keeping track of all the residents and whether they've been vaccinated and having that be verifiable, it would be a huge process. And I think about liberal cities 
cities versus more mm -hmm. conservative cities. They can exist in the same state, but in cities you can, especially like a city like Philadelphia, that's majority blue, if they mm -hmm. could get political consensus on that, could they force that on people? Uh, a city could, unless the state prohibited it. Some states have been active in controlling what individual cities and counties can do in terms of public health. And a state could intervene. And for instance, uh, the Pennsylvania legislature could try to prevent the city of Philadelphia from implementing vaccine passports. If they didn't do that, the city could. But again, the city's going to have the same issue. Even though Philadelphia is largely blue, there would be a lot of pushback. No one likes being told what to do, especially by the government. And again, logistically, imagine Philadelphia, which can't even figure out how to put tickets on parked cars, trying to figure out if one and a half million people have gotten eligible vaccine. I don't see that being accomplished. Could there be mandates for segments of the population? For example, Italy has mandated mm -hmm. that all healthcare workers be vaccinated. We've heard that universities are requiring it for anybody who wants to live on campus. How far could that go? I don't see a mandate being general in terms of you have to have it regardless of who you are, or where you go. I could see specific services and venues requiring it. For instance, to access certain government services, to go into a government building, uh, they could require that you show that you've been vaccinated or private businesses, universities, hospitals, gyms, restaurants, uh, stores, on an individual basis, they could say, you know, no shirt, no shoes, no vaccine, no service. So if, if a concert venue, for example, and they say, we're going to have a big concert, but you can only come if you're vaccinated, is would that be okay? Right now, that would be okay. Now, there's some question as to whether some of, whether some of the red states are going to try to prohibit that. In Florida and Texas, the governors have issued orders that prevent even private businesses from requiring proof of vaccination. Those are on legally shaky grounds because they're simply orders from the governor. But it's possible that legislatures in those states and in other states could make it illegal for private businesses to require proof of vaccination. And that would hold up if they were to go that far. When you think about what Israel has done, they have basically incentivized getting vaccinated. And they, they said, hey, if you get vaccinated, we have this app, all the people with the green cards, right. you can live a normal life. But those people who don't have the vaccination, you can't do anything. Prisons have done the same thing, where you get more out of cell time if you agree mm -hmm. to be vaccinated. You're stuck in your cell 23 hours a day if you don't. How legal are these types of incentives or, or discrimination against the vaxxed versus the non-vaxxed? Well, there's a difference between a private entity and the government doing that because the government is subject to more stringent constitutional provisions in terms of who they can discriminate against. But discrimination is defined as differentially treating someone who's a member of a suspect classification. So that would be race, ethnicity, national origin, uh, in most cases, religion, uh, perhaps gender. If it's not on one of those classifications, if it's say on age or whether you wanna see a movie or whether you wanna to go to a gym club, that's not constitutionally protected. For a private business, as long as you're not discriminating based on a protected category, you can decide who you give service to. And this late legislature can say you can't, if they agree, you can't bar people because they refuse to get the vaccine, then the, the, the different entities, they have to just let everybody in. 
Yeah, and, and again, that could happen in some of the red states. Uh, there would be tremendous pushback. That would be limiting the rights of business owners so they might be protecting some people that don't want to get vaccines, but they would be discriminating against business owners. And if you're running a business, say it's a health club, don't you want to reassure your customers that you've made it as safe as possible? And if you are a potential customer who's elderly or immunocompromised or is otherwise susceptible to the virus, wouldn't you want to prefer a business that took steps to make sure that everyone else there was immunized um, and that you're protected in, in that way or, or another stringent way. Would there be exceptions? Let's say, you know, a lot of these colleges are saying if you want to live on campus, you have to get the shot. You're mm -hmm. saying basically that that could be okay because they already kind of expect right. you. I remember moving on campus in college, you I did show I had all my immunizations. What are the types of exceptions that people could point to to say, hey, I don't want to get it? There was a Supreme Court case in 1905 that set the stage for requiring vaccinations in general. And that's the basis for requiring school children to be vaccinated. And that said that there's one exception that has to be provided, and that's for medical risk from a vaccine. If you can show that you're allergic or immunocompromised, or there's another reason why you're at risk for vaccine side effects, you have to get an exemption for that. You don't have to get an exemption for religious grounds or philosophical objections. That's up to each state to decide. Uh, but whether it's private or public, uh, if you have a medical reason that you can't be vaccinated, uh, you have to be exempted. The problem then comes in that those people may present a risk of infection. And what alternatives what accommodations do you need to give? Can, can you say you don't have to show you've been vaccinated, but if that's the case, you have to wear an N95 mask or you have to keep socially distanced, or if it's a university, you have to study remotely. And so let's talk about the politics of this because one of the things you mentioned and one of the things I know is that if you start trying to force people to do something, right. they're gonna rebel. Um, right. What type of political situation uh, would we have to be in to where people, do you think people would be okay with a mandate? I can't imagine the vast majority of people being okay with a mandate under any circumstances. We've accepted it for the most part for school children, but even there you have a strong anti-vax movement pushing back. If it involves adults, if it involves everyone, and if it involves the government checking up on our vaccine status, I see that even in blue states as being a political problem. Yeah, especially at our full disclosure, I got the J&J &J vaccine. And yeah. I have to say the recent pause has given me major anxiety, right? Even though I know it's more, you know, it's, it's like you got to hit the same chances of hitting the lottery, basically, to yeah. getting these rare blood clots. But, you know, many folks who were hesitant already are pointing to this J&J &J incident. What is the impact of a development like that on the acceptability of something like a mandate? Yeah, well, it certainly doesn't help. People who resist vaccines uh, do it for a number of different reasons. Uh, some of them are just hardcore anti-vaxxers, and they're not going to accept vaccines no matter what. A lot of them are just hesitant. Uh, they want to see what happens, what long-term risks there are, and what benefits there are. And for those, incidents like J&J &J or the AstraZeneca vaccine are going to be a serious cause for concern and a serious impediment 
to rolling out national vaccine programs. It's a shame that J&J &J and both the AstraZeneca risk of blood uh, clots are literally one in a million. Uh, so you're probably at more risk of being hit by lightning. You're definitely at more risk of being in an auto accident commuting to work, but it's still scary. And I have to admit that I would have pause uh, if I saw that there were risks like that. One of the special problems we have now is that these vaccines were approved very quickly. And actually, they haven't even been fully approved. They're subject to what's called an emergency use authorization, which is when you have a life-saving medication that we want to get out as soon as possible, and we don't want to wait for the FDA to do all its layers of review. That's what we've done for these vaccines. Uh, the FDA would ordinarily take months, and they are continuing that process of taking months to look at side effects, but we made a risk-benefit calculation. We just want to get people vaccinated to get beyond the pandemic as fast as we can. Well, the cost of that is that whatever happens long-term, we're not going to know. These vaccines were approved within a month or two uh, of their being submitted to the FDA. How do you know uh, what effects might occur six months or a year from now? So we just have to do a cost-benefit analysis and say for an individual, uh, how much do you want to reduce your risk of developing COVID versus the one in a million chance of a blood clot? And from our society as a whole, how important is it to get us towards herd immunity when there aren't enough susceptible people for the virus to hang around, as opposed to the number of people who might suffer a serious side effect? Uh, most public health people would say side uh, with the herd immunity. Uh, we just want to get beyond this pandemic as quickly as possible. But when each individual is making that calculation for themselves, it becomes a little more difficult. Yeah, and I think about the fact that these uh, vaccines, I believe the Pfizer one was said to only last about six months. So you're going to be coming up. Yeah, that's not true. That's actually not true. Um, they've only studied it as far as six months. When you think about it, the first people to get vaccinated in the clinical trials got the vaccine mid to late 2020. So we don't have more than six months of, of data look at the glass half full side of that report, which says that it lasts at least six months. Those who've been vaccinated the longest still have immunity. We don't yet know if they'll still have it at 12 months or 18 months or whatever, but there's nothing to suggest that they won't. How would that, that timeline or the expiration date, the possible expiration mm -hmm. date on these vaccines impact the ability to convince people to get a, another shot? Well, that's part of the problem with doing this rapid process of authorization, doing the emergency use authorization instead of a full FDA review. We have no way of knowing how long the immunity will last. We can guess, and experts think it's probably two to three years. But if the longest uh, vaccination is only six months, we only can test for six months. I think public health messaging has to be improved. They can't say it's only six months. Uh, what they have to say is, guess what? Our first vaccine recipients are still immune after six months. Let's see what happens when we test them again in another six months. I think that's the optimistic and I would say more accurate way of phrasing it. And so as we wrap up looking forward, 
it seems like people don't have to worry about a mandate becoming reality. Instead, it's more like a push. Yeah, I don't think people have to worry about a mandate in terms of the government telling them you have to get a vaccine the way state governments tell school children you have to be vaccinated in order to attend class. What could happen is that your range of activities could start to shrink, as in Israel, where there are certain concerts and other activities that you have to show vaccination for. You could find that if you want to go to movies, concerts, uh, certainly uh, go on a cruise, do other activities, you're going to have to show proof of vaccination. It is possible that some of these businesses will give you alternatives. You could show you've recovered from COVID and are probably immune. You can show that you've uh, had a very recent negative test. The problem is it's a lot harder to administer that than to simply ask someone to have a card like a driver's license and say, I got the vaccine. At the very least, if you got vaccinated, you'll probably have fuller access to life than those who are not. There's a good chance. Now, we're not there yet. We, we have the universities that are saying that students can only return. We are seeing cruise lines that would like to do that. The airlines would like to do that, but we're not quite there yet. So those restrictions are probably on the horizon, but we'll see. You should take another uh, look at this, uh, not just from who out there is going to let you do what, but how comfortable and safe you're going to feel doing things. A restaurant might let you in without a certificate, but how comfortable will you be eating indoors if you haven't been vaccinated and have a 20-fold chance of being infected if someone with COVID is in that restaurant. I think that is at least as important an issue. Well, with that, I want to say thank you so much to Dr. Robert Field. Thanks for being on Flashpoint. My pleasure. Thank you. Next up, the city of Philadelphia is demanding demographic data for businesses getting city contracts. Government can't force private sector to do anything, but through transparency, we can strongly encourage you. The Dr. Walter P. Lomax Transparency and Business Act. What it does and doesn't do. Coming up, we'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family. If you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more, please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. This is Flashpoint and I'm Cherry Gregg. The Newsmaker of the Week is the Dr. Walter P. Lomax Jr. Transparency in Business Act. It's a collection of bills aimed at increasing transparency, specifically with regard to diversity and inclusion when it comes to municipal contracts. Philadelphia City Council Member Sherelle Parker is the sponsor of the three bills, which passed in December and went into law this month. The City Council Majority Leader is here. Council Member Parker, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cherry, for having me. So you're the force behind the WPLTIBA package. What was the problem you wanted to solve? 
During the past year, uh, particularly in light of the uh, the calls for racial, social, and economic justice, we've seen across the globe, our nation, and particularly here in our majority minority city. And one of the things that that I noticed that was extremely troubling is that when we talked about misuse and you know abuse of police authority, there were a whole lot of people putting their fists in the air saying Black Lives Matter. Whole lot of firms putting kind mission statements on their websites. But that was until we started talking about economics and who was getting the opportunity to build generational wealth. Who were the firms who were benefiting from doing business with with the city? What do the demographics of these firms look like? What's the race, ethnicity, and gender? So if the firm said, we believe that Black Lives Matter, when you pull back the layers of their, their firm, did the makeup of the firm look like they truly believe that Black Lives Matter? And that is, Cherry, when we were determined to introduce legislation on October the 29th of last year called the Dr. Walter P. Lomax Jr. Transparency in Business Act package. And and, and there were three bills. Why did we name it after Dr. Walter P. Lomax? Because he was unapologetic about letting uh, people know that as a physician, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, as well as the founder of what we know as the Lomax companies, as a Black man, he said that it was his opportunity to do business with government that gave him the ability to build wealth. And then all of these other spinoff firms came from it. And of course, a whole lot of public good, you know, as a result of it, it was essential that it be named after Dr. Lomax because he is a model. So I want to first give a special thank you to his family for allowing this legislative package to be named in his honor. Yeah. And so let's talk about the package. You tell me how it solves that problem. So usually what happens during the procurement process, it's a, it's a, it's a very opaque process. So we wanted to empower the tool of transparency. And you, we said, you know what, what if firms seeking to do business with the city were required to provide information about how much money they've been uh, earning doing business with. So for the last five years, your firm has to tell us how much you've earned from doing business with the city, not just those people who have the contract, but the subcontractors for both the goods and the services. And then what if these firms, these contractors, they had to disclose the demographics of the the pool from which they draw workers. Who works at your firm, Sherry? Who works at your business? Or if you are a business and you get your your labor from another place, what does the what do, what do the demographics look like? Mm-hmm. And and the most important piece of this is that all of this will be publicly housed on the city's website. Now, Cherry, we'll be able to click on a firm, see how many people of color a salary range, what the demographics look like. So we have, in essence, empowered the tool of transparency. Now, I want to say this for the record. Mm -hmm. I got a little pushback, Cherry, from someone who said to me, well, Sherelle, you know, some are not as diverse as they should be right now. And this is going to make certain firms look bad. And I said, absolutely not. They should welcome this legislation because now we're giving them a chance 
to improve in public view. So think about that firm that posted outside their business, Black Lives Matter, a poster, or that mission statement on their website. And we look at what their numbers are in terms of, of demographics in 2020, you know, two. And then we look back at 2025. We go, you know, a couple of years from there, and they're still doing business with the city, but we see that their numbers haven't moved. That gives those in the public, I don't care if you're a regular citizen like Cherry and Sherelle, or if you're with an advocacy organization advocating for black and brown small businesses or, you know, folks to build wealth, you can say, now, wait a minute, city of Philadelphia, why in the world would you still be doing business, you know, with this firm? And mm. they don't reflect, their makeup doesn't reflect what Philadelphia's demographic does. Yeah. And I, and I want to ask this because I got to put my lawyer hat on. Would this disclosure in any way influence the procurement process. Now, I love you lawyers because all y'all, all, all the lawyers came back and said, wait a minute, this is this is almost not legal. Are, are you sure? The one thing this firm doesn't do, Cherry, is it does not establish demographic quotas for the staff or the firm's leadership. You know, we cannot do that. That is unconstitutional. But because we've empowered transparency, the journalist doesn't have to put in a right to no request to get information that's sitting on a binder, getting dust in somebody's office. Now the advocates. And, and I'll tell you, transparency, when you have to have these conversations publicly, we're hoping, Sherry, in our majority minority city that the tool will seek to encourage people to do the right thing, because if they don't, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if people ended up with folks who don't like the makeup of the firm, you know, kind of like demanding in a public way. Government can't force private sector to do anything, but through transparency, we can strongly encourage you. And I understand this website should be up and running and we as journalists and the world and the public can take a look sometime this summer. Philadelphia's had such a tough, you know, two years in particular, first $750 million hole, then $450 million hole. Thank God for the American uh, rescue plan. Thank you, uh, President Biden, the Biden-Harris administration. Um, and as a result of that, when we finish our budget process, our new fiscal year starts on July 1. It is our hope and it, it is the intent to have this up and running. But guess what? We got to get some money. <laughs> First, you know, in order to make sure we have the technical capacity, in order to make sure it's easily accessible, because even if you create a technical vehicle that is public, you can make it so complex that it's difficult for someone to navigate. We want this to be as streamlined and simple as, as possible. Check out the Dr. Walter P. Lomax Jr. Transparency in Business Act. It's on the city website. You can check out all the requirements. And we're hoping to see everything up and running by the end of the summer. I'm going to put it out there uh, once we get through this budget cycle. Councilmember Parker, thank you so much for coming on Flashpoint. Thank you for having us. Next up, she helps victims of crime through dark times. I want those victims to know I'm here for you. The head of a regional victim services nonprofit discusses how the pandemic has made an impact. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you are a caregiver and 
feel uncertain about where you're working now? Call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Odyssey app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community. And a nonprofit is on a mission to change the way victims of crime are treated in Northwest Philadelphia with their expansion of strategies to help create a safe environment. Joining us is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, Executive Director of Northwest Victim Services, the one and only Melanie P. Nelson. Melanie, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank Thank you. Well, first of all, congratulations on your award for your work in victim services. Thank you so much. It means a lot. So tell us what organization like Northwest Victim Services does. So Northwest Victim Services, we provide free services to all victims, witnesses, and community members affected by crime within the Northwest section of Philadelphia and beyond. We help those victims who have lost wages, unpaid medical bills, lost time from work, funeral expenses, which is huge. We also assist with relocation for those victims who have been shot and they don't know who shot them or those victims who do know. We also provide court accompaniment. So we go to court with our victims and witnesses as well, because that right there is a very, very scary experience. And we have free therapy. And how has your work changed because of the pandemic? It has changed dramatically. I know people are like, okay, because of the pandemic and we have to stay in the house. Oh, I know crime is down. So the opposite. It has been so many shootings in the city of Philadelphia. It has been so many shootings in the Northwest section of Philadelphia. So the beautiful part about Northwest Victim Services, we love collaborations. We have a great collaboration with Einstein Hospital and we have a great collaboration with Temple Hospital. So when those victims were actually coming into the hospital, I was on the phone with Einstein. I need to know all of those victims. I need to know how I can help them. This is not a job. This is my passion. I want the victims to know I'm here for you. How can I help you? What services do you need? So during the pandemic, the shootings have increased. The homicides have increased. And another thing to blow your mind, there has been so many female shootings. You remember back in the day, females Mm -hmm. and children were off limits. It doesn't seem that way anymore. It just seems like there's no regard for human life anymore. But Northwest Victim Services provides services beyond 5 p.m. We provide services on the weekend. We provide services on holidays. And, you know, people always think about victims, you know, being the the family members of those who have been killed. But we've had in 2021 more than 500 shootings. I mean, yes. So you think about all those victims and it's it's several percentage points up in the multiples in many cases over last year. And last year was a spike from the year before. Yes. Yes. So are you guys getting enough resources? Because you have to have an influx of folks that you need help. Um, how can people support you all? Because this is a 
an epidemic of its own, this violence. It sure is. And I'm glad you said that. We file a claim to the Victims' Compensation Program, which is in Harrisburg, and that's how we're able to help with the lost wages, the reimbursement of the funeral. But we have fundraisers, and those fundraisers allow us to be able to continue to provide free services to victims and witnesses of crime. We're a small nonprofit, so we don't get a lot of money, but those fundraisers were so crucial to us. So think about that domestic violence victim and domestic violence is up now because of the COVID. So the person who's being abused is in the house all day with the person who's abusing them. Mm. So for us to be able to put somebody up in a hotel, for us to be able to help this person move into an apartment and help them with, first and last month's rent and security deposit. That's the beautiful part about our fundraisers, but we wasn't able to have fundraisers. We welcome donations and sponsorships to be able to continue to offer free services to victims and witnesses of crime. Yeah. And so how are you holding up? I have to ask that question to all the folks who provide services um, because, I mean, people are working, like you said, seven days a week, round the clock, because there's so much of a need. Yeah, it, it's working, it sounds like you're working double time, too. I am. It is really, really hard. And it's heartbreaking. Just like we had, uh, I think he's 10 years old. He was home. And I'm pretty sure you saw this on the news. They actually were shooting and he was struck in his house. <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff that it just goes all through me. So then I'm saying to myself, okay, I don't know how much I can deal with this. I don't know how much longer. And I cry. I do. My husband gets the brunt end of all of this at the end of the day. But guess what? When I talk to that mother who has lost her child to gun violence, and before we get off the phone, Sherry, you know what she says to me? Melanie, I love you. That right there, no money, no gift, no nothing can replace that. That's why I do what I do. And every day I will do it. I will serve because that's my passion. But I turn nobody away when they ask me for help. Any resource that I have, I make it available to anybody. Have you expanded your strategies for reaching out and keeping people safe? Definitely. We work very closely with the 5th, 14th, 35th, and 39th police districts. So all of those captains are dynamic. So I get reports of all the crimes that occur the day before. But I'll look at those reports and I go through them and I say, okay, listen, I need this victim's number. So not only are we mailing that information, I'm also calling and I'm still doing home visits. How can people get in touch with you with victim services if they need your assistance? They can reach me at MPN at NorthwestVictimServices.org. Congratulations for all your hard work. And thank you so much uh, for being on Flashpoint. Thank you so much, Sherry. I really appreciate it. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it up with a quote, here's one from Unknown. I am free because I know that I am morally responsible for everything that I do. The show is produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.